show on the incandescent radio network, the voice of entrepreneurs. In each episode of the show, we shine a spotlight on the women who are making strides and changing lives. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Truly Amazing Women radio show and TV show. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Incorporated, a PR firm and publishing company, and I couldn't be more thrilled than to have our guest today, Laverne Gordon. My co-host is Cynthia DeLorenzi, the amazing woman who founded Success in the City in Washington, D.C. several decades ago. We've been friends forever, and I'm so honored to be doing this work with her. And Laverne, we're just thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm going to just introduce um, our audience to you. Uh, you are the founder of the Love Life Now Foundation, an organization that you created in right after you you won two beauty pageants. You're from Haiti. And we just want to let know all about you and the work you're doing. So. <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself, and then Cynthia will start the interview. Thank you so much. Um, so, quick correction, I'm from the island of Trinidad. Haiti is grand, a grand island as well, um, but I'm from Trinidad, which is the most southerly island in the Caribbean, um, and lived there for about 15 years till I migrated to the States. And as you mentioned, in 2010, I won two beauty pageants, uh, one locally and the other national, like in LA, um, and then really had to pick a platform that I advocated for, and domestic violence was an easy choice given my history with the issue as a two-time survivor a child witness to the issue on the island of trinidad and an adult, an adult survivor here in the states um, in a from a two-year relationship um, and you know fast forward here we are this is our 10th year that we've been around so i'm so grateful for that and we are just doing work around the issue and awareness um, as well as any help that we can give victims and survivors affected by this issue. So thank you again for having us. There's some things in life that we really need to shine the light on. And issues like domestic violence, especially those who happen to have been in, involved in it in some way, it's, it's a topic we silence a lot. I think women are really taught a lot about being polite and we don't speak out and you know, all of these things, but it's, it's very broad. Yeah. And the domestic violence is not one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just somebody hit you or that you hit somebody. It is mm -hmm. abuse of dialogue, language, mm -hmm. intimidation, and it's pervasive when it's going on in a family Yeah, because um, the, the person who's experiencing it, but there's also the people family members around also witnessing it. Exactly. And that is a form of violence to them too. Mm -hmm. And and it and it's such a complex issue. It can start in dating, you know, like you have that boyfriend who maybe just you know too much testosterone or is jealous, and and then it leads to violence. So it's a very complex issue. And yeah, I don't think it is. It's it's, it's not it one answer. And so you, you you touched on something very early on there. You said um, you know first of all that it goes across the board. Um, but girls are taught from very early on to be polite and, you know, somewhat accepting of certain behaviors. 
because from a very early age, right? And that's the general culture is that girls are brought up generally in these gender roles to believe that you have to be quiet. You have to speak when you're spoken to. If a boy on the ground, he likes, it's okay. Um, you know, all of these things that sort of have us thinking that this is where it's at. So as a young girl for me growing up in the Caribbean, um, I was taught all those things. Whereas my brothers have free reign, right? Run amok and be a boy and toughen up and don't cry. And, and so again, these gender roles are implemented from a very early standpoint. And then double that with the idea of watching and witnessing abuse within the home. You believe that somewhere along the line, that is what love is. And even though I said that it would never be me, it ended up being me, right? So at 21, I fell into this relationship, you know, as a young professional, uh, also going to college at night. Um, I thought that that could never happen to me, right? There's no way I'm, I would ever be my mother who at the time had a school education. My father was the winner and the person that called the shots and told her what to do and told her that she was stupid and told her that she was dumb. Um, I heard all of that and I, I wanted to be more like him in the, in, the, in the sense of, you know, that assertiveness and that, you know, that dominant sort of way. But I also hated what he did to her. But when I fell into this relationship at 21 and I ex got slapped the first time and he came back with an elaborate apology, purple flowers, my favorite color. Um, I'm sorry. And a bunch of voicemails and call me and a great card. And I took that apology because I, in that moment, diminished what had happened to me in thinking that it wasn't as bad as what my mom had went through. Right. He, he you know, there were no scars. The pain of the slap was over. He didn't mean it. Right. And he's never going to do it again. And I hung on to that. And for about two weeks until the next attack, it didn't happen again. But my God, when it did, it just set me in a trajectory that said, okay, this is what love is. Granted, this is what my mom went through and this is probably what all relationships are. This is what love is. And I think for a lot of the times, and I talked about this the other day in another video is that, you know, we tend to think that at some point our abusers are going to change. So we stick around waiting and hoping and wishing that the person that we fell in love with or the person that they showed us them to be or what you know expected of them to be was never there they in part also learned how to treat their spouses and their partners from a very early on just as we did right victims right they learned that to be dominant and forceful and take control and tell her what to do and tell him what to do that's how you command respect that's how you garner love, right? To be jealous and insecure and into their adult relationships. You know, you know, 90% of the time, right? Unfortunately, males are the perpetrators in these types of relationships. But they also learned from their adults in their circle, whether it be in their houses or in their neighborhoods, how to accept love and how to give love. And so, you know, it's, it's just so important from very early on that we're not sending these messages to our children um, because they are really taking in really what adult relationships are going to look like in the long run for them.
Yeah, and it's so uh, ubiquitous, ubiquitous, unfortunately. You and yeah. I got connected because um, I'm good friends with Tracy Schott, who created uh, Jen, voice, Finding Jen's Voice, a beautiful film yes. about this tragic story of so too many women around the world who are victims of domestic abuse. Men are too, of course. Yes. It's really focused on the majority of women. It's like one in three, something just horrifying. Um, and then the impact that it has on our kids, as Cynthia said. So tell us about the work you're doing, because when there's a problem, I always like to find people who are coming up with solutions. Um, and Tracy is one of those females, yeah. um, just like the two of you. We're starting the Voices for Change radio show every Tuesday morning, um, noon o'clock Eastern time. So we're, I'm thrilled to bring this message because our mission, the three of us and all the women that we're holding hands with are determined to stomp out domestic abuse. Just we're putting oh. it into it. We're determined to do it. And if not this generation in, in the next or hopefully yes. now. So tell us about the incredible advocacy work you're doing with the Love Life Now Foundation. Yeah, so Love Life Now started out of necessity for me, right? And so when I ended up at my breaking point and escaped my last attack, I ended up in the emergency room for injuries I had sustained during that. And, you know, initially I lied to the doctor about what happened, right? I said I fell in the shower because I didn't want anybody looking at me as weak. I didn't want to be blamed and I didn't want any uh, uh, you know, additional attention coming my way as it related to this to this issue. And so he saw through it after the, you know, he got the x-rays. He said, these injuries are consistent with you falling in the shower. Um, you know, and I finally admitted, but I I at I didn't want any police. I said, please, I just want to go home, not realizing that this was the most dangerous time for me. So fast forward all these years to Love Life Now, I really needed for people in my community, people that look like me, to understand that first it's happening everywhere, there's help everywhere. And I didn't know when help was presented to me, I didn't know what that looked like. And it was very scary. So the one of the big missions for us is to not only tell people where help is, but to sort of present what help looks like. So we advocate for a shelter once per year. Each year, we pick a domestic violence agency that's doing the frontline work, that's putting up people in, in, in emergency housing and talk about them. We talk about the services that they provide, services that I didn't know existed, legal ad advocacy that they can help folks with, um, you know, counseling, not just for you after you've gone through an issue like this, but helping you unpack you and or your children, um, what this issue has done to you mentally and emotionally, because as we, you, Cynthia, you talked about scars, right? Um, those scars aren't always on the outside. They're, they're in the inside from the verbal put downs and the emotional tirades and the stuff that you carry around once those physical scars have healed um, for many years, because they're under there just permeating, just waiting to come to the surface that can be triggered by anything. So counseling that folks that can help you unpack what you've been through, um, financial literacy, um, um, housing, stabilized housing that you can, after you've escaped and you've been in shelter for some time to get you and or your children to, you know, regular life where there is no violence. So there's so many services that people don't know about. They think when they hear shelter, which I did, um, is a big open room of beds with a bunch of women that they don't know. 
And that's simply not the case. Just this morning, we had someone call us um, looking for help for one of their friends. And when I ended up talking to her, I said, listen, I've been where you're at, right? I said, you know, if you decide that you're ready to go to shelter, I can promise you that it's not what you think. I said, I've been in them. I've volunteered at them, right? And help is like, oh my God, this means so much. She said, because, you know, I want to leave, but I want to leave with dignity, right? I don't want to end up, you know, in this downtrodden things just to, to have my own bedroom that would mean a lot and that's what it is so we try to talk about you know again what you know leaving looks like what the other side the daunting scary side um, is and that it really isn't scary so we put on initiatives as well throughout the year that get people out and about talking about the issue because again people are looking for a way um, even as if you're still a victim we've had many people come to our events that are still involved in these types of relationships and they're just looking for someone else to know that they're not alone and when they come to our initiatives that we host in the community obviously COVID has sort of put a spin on that lately um, but when in person when we're able to gather in person we host different initiatives throughout the year that get people out and about talking about the issue so that they can get a build and be a part of a network in person, right? To really connect with folks about, you know, to be part of the solution. And one of those that, you know, those initiatives that we have coming up is the white ribbon. It's surrounding the white ribbon campaign. And essentially, if we were in person, it would be a night, a formal night. Everybody gets glammed up. Um, but that night, there are about three or four men that we get to speak to the men in the room specifically. Too often, as we sit here right now, it's three of us, three women, talking about this issue, that the, the thing that's been done to women, but we don't have the voice included of who's 90% supposed to be held accountable in, in this conversation. So we try to involve men in the conversation and tell them, we need you as allies, right? If this thing is ever going to get anywhere, we need your voice here too. We need you talking to your sons, your nephews, your colleagues about the ways they can be part of the solution. We need you to listen up that if you're sitting at the barbershop and you hear another guy coming out of his mouth saying, I beat my up last night, what is your stance? How are you going to let him know I don't stand for that? And we really can be friends if that's the way you're rolling, right? Um, so we try to involve, you know, maybe a local celebrity that night, maybe um, a local politician uh, in the conversation, and then a regular guy that's out in the community using his voice, maybe on social media, to say, no, I don't stand for this. Um, to come out and talk to the men, as I said, in the room about the ways that they can do the same. And at the end of the night, they take what's called the White Ribbon Day Pledge, which in part says, from this day forward, I will no longer condone violence against women. And that sounds simple enough, but victims and survivors and even women who have never been affected by this issue, sitting in that audience to hear a man, men, a group take and say this out loud means a lot. And that's what we try to do. So this year it looks very different because of the coronavirus. And what we're doing is we're having men virtually from different parts of the states, different parts of the world. It's gonna be a convening of men that's gonna be the white ribbon night conference, um, the white ribbon night, uh, white ribbon 
awareness night. Um, and so each of them are gonna be coming and sort of saying why they're against domestic violence, but also lifting up a woman in their circle and why they would never want this issue to happen to them. So we've started sort of culminating those, um, those videos from men across the world. And we're so excited about it because it's really gonna be an awareness, you know, a 30 minute path a night of awareness that is going to premiere live on Facebook and YouTube. So we're really excited about that. Um, and I cannot wait. <laughs> One of the things in prepping for a conversation with you today, I did a bit of research and my, and my question was, where are we today in this period of mm. the pandemic? You know, how does domestic violence look? Is it escalated? Which my assumption or guess would have been that domestic violence would be on the rise right now, simply because a ton of pressure. Maybe you're threatened loss. You're, everybody's together working from home. You're not having space. Um, all of the demands and everybody's stressed. And one of the studies they had anticipated, which was fascinating to me, was that the numbers would, would escalate to all of the services and agencies need to be prepared. What they were surprised mm -hmm. to find is that didn't happen. But it wasn't that domestic violence wasn't, mm -hmm. violence wasn't increasing. It was that yeah. there's no way to reach out. Yeah. And that makes it, so are you seeing that? And what do you say about that? And what should people be doing? Especially anybody watching us or watching this video or the slide feed, what advice would yeah. you have? Yeah, so to, to, the, to the first question, we have seen it play out exactly like you said. So people are still having to social distance with their abuser. And whereas before COVID, you had the ability to either go to your sister's house or leave the house and go to work where you had eight hours a day that you weren't around them or go down the street to visit your neighbor to get a breather because they're not leaving and so you can leave if you can leave. Um, that's not the case, right? And so especially when it initially hit, I think things they're a little bit less strict um, around, you know, how you can, because people now know how you can move about safely. In the beginning, you couldn't, right? And so we had, you know, at least two calls in the beginning from one, a, one woman was an uh, EMT. And so she one day called us looking for help um, and she couldn't talk. So she had to go out in the car and make the call. Another time when she had to call us, there was no going back outside, right? Um, and this is the type of thing that we were running into. When we saw that the National Domestic Violence Hotline had pivoted to have the ability to chat on their website, you know, live with someone because they knew that people couldn't necessarily pick up the phone to talk freely. Um, I was like, we're gonna do that. So we adopted a, a toll-free number um, and the people had the ability then to then now not just call us, but to text us. So looking for what you're in need of, as opposed to picking up the phone, because you just can't. This person is there with you all the time. Um, so my advice is, first of all, so there's there've been some sort of signs that have been going around on social media that say, you know, videos that say, you know, do this in a video and people will know that you're in a very bad situation in order to call for help. The problem is that isn't, that isn't worldwide. People don't know that sign. Not everybody does, right? If you see the video, yeah. And if you adapt it with a friend or neighbor, you'll know. So what I say is always have um, sort of a, a plan with a, you know, a sister, a friend, a mom, that if you're talking on the phone, you could say, I've got to get pizza tomorrow, or I got to get formula. And they know 
they know you're not going to feel comfortable letting, let's say you, Cynthia, and you hope know that this thing, this sign, I'm not, I don't feel comfortable letting you know that I'm in an abusive relationship. First of all, I'm not necessarily going to reach out to you first for help. I'm going to call my sister who knows my husband. I'm going to call my mom, but I need now to let them know my code word, right? Or, or, or my, my thing, right? To, to let them know that this is bad. If I text you this, it's under the guise of I need help. Um, so having that in place way beforehand, um, you know, always being prepared to dash out and leave, whether it means keeping a, a, you know, spare key under the mat outside or in the visor of your car, somewhere where they, they normally would look, right? Having a spare key there, um, you know, having a, 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 a cell phone, again, stashed somewhere, a burner phone, they cost like 10 bucks, right? That you can use and, and, and call for help so that they can't track you um, on virtual, you know, virtual platforms, your, you know, your regular phone, it, where, wherever you're leaving a digital footprint, have sort of a burner piece set aside somewhere that you can use to call for help. Because again, it isn't this, and, and please do not believe that the police are not helping because of the pandemic or they're not available to help. They're still working. They're still gonna respond to 911 calls. They're gonna take the necessary precautions when they come to your house, but they're still gonna help you. So don't let that deter you. The courts are still open. Some of them are still, you know, they're doing it virtually. Some of them are granting emergency restraining orders via, via Zoom, right? So don't be afraid that you're, you're not gonna get the help. The help is still available. And all you have to do is reach out and help. So that's, that's, that's the advice I've been given is don't, you know, don't, don't believe that there isn't help because of this time there is help. Um, and it's just, you know, if you can't pick up the phone, even if you can't, uh, reach out to us via texting because they're monitoring, they're standing over you texting, you know, send your, like I said, your sister, your cousin, or your friend, a random, you know, sort of line that you guys have that, you know, right so that they can call for you, right? It doesn't mean that you have to physically call, but you can, again, help is still available during this time. And that's what I wanna mostly relay. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating and horrifying that so many women are in this position, right? Where, you know, they just, sometimes they're just kind of screwed, right? <laughs> they, right? And I'm, I'm heartened. I've been watching films like Whistleblower about human trafficking with mm -hmm. Rachel Weitz, which was beautiful, and herself out of Ireland about a woman who's abused and how she fought through the systems. And I think yeah. that the more films like that that are out there mm -hmm. that are really helping women see that they're not alone. But kick it back right. a few notches. Um, with Tracy, we talk a lot about, um, in my interviews with her, about why women don't leave. Because say you do have a sister who is struggling with this, but she really doesn't feel empowered to make a change or, you know, to leave, or she can't for some reason. What mm -hmm. do you do for your friends and your, your loved ones who are struggling with this when they really don't feel empowered themselves? So it's very frustrating for family members and friends on the outside looking and watching this issue because they know what needs to happen. They, they, they know that you need to leave, right? And a lot of the time they will say, you know, leave him, go, I'll come over there and I'll kill him, right? But for a victim with the idea that, you know, this is wrong and I'm speaking from experience, right? You, and my mother's experience, I, we know, you know, this is wrong, but you love them. 
So you want the abuse to stop, but you don't want them hurt or you don't want them in jail or you don't want them to get in trouble, quote unquote, right? Because that's bringing stress and drama to the family because you've heard as much from them. That's what you're hearing. That's what you're getting. And so what I say to folks and what really generally is the right thing to do is to empower them. First of all, do your research about what help is available. Don't just go blindly and say, well, you know, you can just come to my house. You know, I'll take you and the kids. I'll keep you guys. How long is that going to last for? Can you keep us for a month? Can you keep us for three months? Can you keep us for a year? Are you going to pick up the kids from school? Because that's what he used to do. He beats me, but he's a good provider. He bashes me, but he takes care of the house. He takes care of the kids because I can't financially, right? So all of these layers go into leaving. It's not just get up and go. There are layers to this, especially when their kids involved, right? So empowering them, number one, by giving them the information to have on hand or you keeping it on hand for them should they get to their breaking point because it doesn't matter how many times you say go they have to be ready to leave and a, not a moment sooner will they do that maybe you'll cause an intervention maybe you'll drag them out kicking and screaming i don't want to they'll go back on average it takes victims at least seven to ten times to actually leave that's if they leave because that's where they want to be that's what they know. And where you've brought them or where they've ended up, that's scary. They're used to chaos. And now you've brought them to calm. But they need that chaos. And it's a very skewed mentality. But that's what it is. That's the reality of it, right, sometimes. So there are all these layers that sort of keep victims there. There's so many reasons why victims end up having to stay. First and foremost, out of fear. Second, their children whether it be financial support um, or that they the, the abuser has threatened the kids. Uh, oh, I'll kill the kids or I'll keep the kids or I'll take the kids from you and make you look like an unfit parent, right? Or immigration. They've come from another country under the guise of, I'm going to love you. I'm going to marry you. You're going to get papers. And when they get here, there is no papers. There is no love. The abuse sues and they're stuck. So now they can't leave because they'll get deported. Not knowing that's not the case. If they report to the police, they're not concerned with your immigration status. They want to protect you. You will be protected under the Violence Against Women Act, but they don't know, right? So there's so many reasons why victims end up staying in this relationship. They believe that the abuser will change. They believe that the person that they love, fell in love with will show up at some point because they've said as much. I'll go to therapy with you. Okay, I'll go to church. Okay, I'll stop abusing you for this week. It's almost like they're dangling a little carrot in front of them. Okay, come on back, come on back. And then they come back and things are the same. So the, the question should never be, why do victims stay? It should be, why do abusers abuse and why aren't we holding them more accountable on this issue? I just, I, I don't like it. I don't like it when that question is posed because it's almost like I asked for this. <laughs> I wanna be abused. That's why I'm here. We need to help change that narrative and shine light even more on those that are and should be accountable accountable for it even more so. You, so um, that's my thing is you know empowering them as much as you can. Being a listening, a non-judgmental ear is very helpful. They're not necessarily looking for a way to get out. 
They just want to unload to anybody. And maybe if they've done that enough, maybe they get to a point where it's just like, no, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Okay. And again, them wanting to leave because no matter how much you stay sticking around, believing that you're going to, you know, and you cry. This is certainly what I believe. If I cried enough tears, they'll stop beating on me. They'll see how much they're hurting me. That doesn't work. It doesn't matter how long you stick around. All that is doing is enabling them to take it to another level, right? And they're never going to change. Just like us having to want to make the change or the, the, the decision to leave, they also have to want to make the decision to stop. And that's not gonna happen by itself. That needs therapy, which they're not going forward, which is why the, 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 the cycle keeps repeating itself. Therapy and self-accountability. Two things that <laughs> abusers are typically against. So again, you know, empower them as much as you can, be a non-judgmental ear, provide them with the information, help them see that it, you know, that the help is not daunting. Uh, volunteer to keep the kids should they decide to go, you know, to the police, volunteer to drive them, volunteer to be there with them on the day of the appointment if they're scared out of their minds. Empower them, empower them, empower them. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, especially having men speak out, you know, okay. and taking the white women, white <clears throat> women white pledge, ribbon, yeah. pledge, yeah, it's really interesting to me. And I'm wondering how that's going to begin through this message out loud that, that, that it is more masculine, it is more sexy, it is more appealing, it is more ingratiating, it is everything not to be abusive. Yes. That, that, <clears throat> that is a standard for real humanity and real men. And how do we begin to see this change and begin to make this happen? And I know that almost sounds like so whimsical and like, you know, I'm not living in a real world, but it's got to come from two places. One, the hope and the pathway and the resources to escape mm -hmm. to safety mm -hmm. for you and your child permanently. But to also begin to create this cultural shift that that's not masculinity. Mm -hmm. It's not empowerment. It's, it's nothing but this, this place that doesn't bring growth or opportunity to anybody on either yeah. side of the equation. You've diminished yourself when you're an abuser. As much as you've diminished the person you're hurting, you are diminishing yourself as well. Mm -hmm. And how do we begin to move that to where that becomes a reality in this culture? And that is an impossible question. And there really is no answer. But I think you have to say mm -hmm. it and say it and say yeah. it and show it and have maybe the abusers begin to say, wow, I was there mm -hmm. and that was wrong. Mm -hmm. And now I tell everybody not to do it. So do you have that kind of program going on and what you're doing? Do you see that? And I know that that's such a pipe dream, but you know, it's just like, how do we affect change? Yeah, so start. it starts where we're at, right? It's not a, you know, it, it, it won't be global until we start where we're at right? You're, you're where you're at. I'm where I'm at. And I'm telling the guys in my community, this is where it's at, right? I just, so I, I just came back from Arizona. Um, so I'm writing a book and we, I have to go shoot the cover for the book there. And the two guys that I got, you know, on camera to talk about the pledge and what this issue means to them and to, to, to be against um, domestic violence and, and have them talk. It was like, oh, that's great but they didn't know what they didn't know prior to me saying anything. It just takes all of us 
right? And that is a ripple effect. So they're not gonna go on. So one of the guys was a sheriff of one of the counties there and another guy's uh, uh, an author and an electrician. Two different, two different. So can you imagine if he goes back to his department, the sheriff, and then says, I wanna implement something like this because I want everybody in the department to sort of take this sort of stance, even though this is what we do for work, right? Um, I, I, I really want, to, and he's gonna, he, he goes, tells his sons, and his sons tells his boys in college. And then, you know, it's just a ripple effect. Same thing with the author. He goes back and he's talking while he's working and that's all it is, right? Nothing comes from nothing. It has to start somewhere. And that's, that's that for me, community change go, goes into global change, right? Um, it's the sons that, that are coming up. We've implemented that message in our, in our son, he's seven. Right? We've talked about this with him since he was four. It's not cute to hit girls. If you like somebody, use your words. Right? That's the next generation coming up. So he's then going to go on the playground and he's going to say, friends, not cool. Don't do that. That's it. That's how change happens. Um, I've never sort of believed in sort of this, you know, the global big marketing campaigns. Yeah, they're there. But how, how are they trickling down into the communities where we're at? What does that mean in my community, right? Um, it often doesn't, right? But it's, it's a global thing that you know in passing, but how are you enacting it in your everyday life? And that's what the White Ribbon Campaign is about, is taking the message to men and boys in your space and then having that affect the community that you're in. Uh, and that's the whole is, so the white, how I learned of the white ribbon campaign, it's a nationwide campaign, first of all. It started in Canada and, and, and trickled over into the States. After one man massacred 14 women, they he, just out the guise, under the guise that he hated women. He hated women and, th and this massacre of 14 women. And they said, this can't be, like this cannot be real life. Like you cannot just get up one day and decide I hate women, this is what I'm gonna do. I wanna hurt them when they kill them. And so, you know, the, the nationwide campaign, the one here in the um, state side in Massachusetts where I am, um, is headed up by the, the state coalition, Jane Doe. Um, do a wonderful job each year, the first Thursday of every March. They culminated at the state house um, where, but men and boys from all different communities come together to talk about this issue. But leading up to it, they have various, you know, pockets and communities that are men and boys that are sending the message. And that's what it is. And so then for me, when I learned about the White Women campaign, I'm like, wait a minute, people like me, I, I, I never heard it down here. So I want to bring that to my, to, to my community, right? Um, and that's how I started with it. Now, 10 years later, we now have a gala that the, the commissioner of police has, has, has supported, the mayor, and they're all now amongst regular men and boys that also want to you know, carry the message of change. So again, it's just this ripple effect, Cynthia, that I believe in with anything. Um, starting where you are at and have it just span out. Um, and that's my hope. So yeah, that's, that's where I see change happening is right where we're at. And if it gets, you know, as wide as, you know, the big global campaign, so be it. But here where we're at, we're making change right now. We're, we're, we're disbanding from the general myths that boys aren't allowed to show emotion, that you are a, you know, very bad word if you don't, you know, don't man up and, you know, 
take control and we're, we're trying to change those behaviors. That's like you said, it's not sexy. <laughs> None of that is cool. It's way more cool to have you be an empath to a woman that is going through something, to ask her, does she feel okay? It's okay and sexy for you to show emotion. That, that hey, that turns me on, <laughs> right? Let's keep it real. I, I want to see that. And we have to change that narrative that these things are not okay in, in terms of gender roles um, and have, the, have it switched up. Have men and boys know that, you know, this isn't the way to go. Um, and it doesn't make you any less of a man. It, if anything, it makes you more of a man when you become an ally to, 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 to somebody that is just as human as you, that are, is not subservient or below or beneath you, right here lockstep, um, it, it, it means more than anything, yeah. so. Cynthia always says that about her husband, how he has to be the strongest man in the world. Tell that little story. I love when you tell us. <laughs> yeah, no, a friend of mine says, your husband has got to be the most confident man in the world to be married to you. <laughs> I love it. Because it's crazy. It's crazy in my house. Yeah, but, yeah, you know, yeah. It's just like, yeah. But yeah, so it would be crazy making for anybody else, but he just was like cool with it, you know. I love it. I mean, it. if a ballerina was on a trapeze, then here he go. Look at that. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. You are making change. You are loving life now at lovelifenow.org, yes. where people can come check you out. You are the cover story for the February 2021 issue of Incandescent <laughs> Women magazine. Um, Cynthia and I are co authors of your 2021 What's Next journal, and you'll also be our feature in February. So we're thrilled to be working with you to help leverage what you're doing in any way possible because stomping out domestic violence not shaming women, letting men take on the responsibility. I love that. I just, and, and however we can do that to empower men to, you know, control themselves, never be raise a, a hand to a woman, never let another man raise a hand to a woman. Amen. Right? I swear. And, so, and share how, if you want people to find you, share with us how they can reach out to you, find you, find your resources. Yeah. So please share that now. As Hope mentioned, um, we're on the web, www.lovelifenow.org. Um, we're all over social media. That's a lot of where we share, you know, these messages of awareness and education. And that's at, at, at Love Life Now Found. And so found, short for foundation, L-O-V-E-L-I-F-E-N-O-W. F-O-U-N-D, that's Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I am in the process of writing a book. Um, it's called The Legacy He Left Me. And you can also find me on uh, Instagram, on Facebook via those pages as well, at The Legacy He Left Me. Um, and the book centers around my journey of being a child witness to this issue, the trajectory that my father set me on, that I really had no choice in the matter to sort of end up as a victim based on what I witnessed. Um, it takes you through that journey, but then it also sort of brings you to the other side to see what love, like as you said, loving life now looks like, you know, starting the foundation and finding love again and healthy relationships. And sort of, it also acts like a guidebook um, in some, because it, you know, preceding each chapter, it gives you sort of the, the scientific CDC, you know, what is adverse childhood re, um, uh, reactions, how that affects you in adulthood life. So sort of you can marry what you're reading to what you're potentially experiencing and have you put two and two together. And even if you've never experienced domestic violence, this book really, I hope, gives people sort of an inside 
insight as to what this issue can look like for victims and survivors of abuse. So I'm just really excited about all things happening. As I mentioned, this is the 10th year for Love Life Now Foundation, and we're, we're so happy to still be grassroots and touching communities and touching people right here where we're at um, and throughout the states, really, um, to, to help affect change, to be a small part of that big ripple effect that we talked about earlier. So thank you guys again. I appreciate you big time. And awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Cynthia, my co-host for the Truly Amazing Women Show and Laverne Gordon. Keep doing that amazing work. We're so impressed and proud and honored to be part of the change that you are making in the world. So big time. I appreciate you. Thank you. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Incorporated, a PR firm publishing company, just thrilled to shine a light on the work that Truly Amazing Women are doing around the world. So we will talk to you next time. Thank you for watching us live on Facebook and you can check out this recording on Incandescent Radio's Truly Amazing Women show and incandescentwomen.tv. So we look forward to talking to you again. Stay well, stay safe and keep your loved ones protected. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Truly Amazing Women show on the Incandescent Radio Network, the voice of entrepreneurs. If you're a truly amazing woman or know someone who is, don't hesitate to contact us. Simply log on to www.trulyamazingwomen.com and fill out the proposal form. We've profiled more than 250 women on the site who fit the bill of being truly amazing, and we look forward to honoring more. Who will be our next truly amazing woman? Tune in next week for a new episode on www.incandescentradio.com. Here's to your incredible, indelible success. <laughs>